Isn't that amazing? You know, John Piper has said that mission exists because worship doesn't. Right? One day, he goes on to say, mission will end. Jesus will come. All the nations will gather around the throne of the Lamb, and they will worship. We will worship. We will worship. We will enjoy God forever. Mission will be over at that point. And worship goes on forever. And that's a great it's a great reminder to us that as we start to think about mission, that first we think about worship. First we think about God. We think about him. We think about his heart. So this morning, we're talking about the missionary heart of God. We're going to talk about what he's like, what he's after in the world. I'm reminded of a story that my wife told me once. She was about 10 years old, and she said it was her birthday or her birthday was coming up. Her dad comes to little 10-year-old, 11-year-old Megan, says, honey, what do you want for your birthday? And she said, and surprised him, I want a Beach Boys record. So this is 1990, 91, to date me, I guess, but uh, to date the musical scene, too. So this 10-year-old, 11-year-old girl in in 1990 wants an album from a band that was most popular in the 60s. So her dad was surprised. Why, honey? What do you think she said? Because you love them, Daddy. You see what had started to happen for her? She loved her dad. She delighted in her dad. And all of a sudden, she started wanting to be like her dad. You love them, Dad. That's why, I, that's why I care. I care about what you care about. I, I want to be about the things that you're about, Dad. Can I have a Beach Boys album? And I actually think that's, that's the reason, the primary reason to care about God's mission. People are lost. That is a biblical reason to care about mission. We should. We should feel compelled like Paul would say. People are lost. We want them to be found, right? Or or, uh, we could talk about the glory of God. We want God to be glorified. All the worship that's being given to idols around the world, we should should have a kind of a holy angst about that. that, that. Only God deserves that worship. And so maybe that compels us to go out and say, let me introduce you to the true God, the worthy God. Worship him alone. I think that's a a biblical good reason to get involved in mission. But I think the best reason, if I have have to choose, I think the best reason is because we, we know God, we start to delight in God, and we just start to care about the things that he cares about. We want to, Dad, what's your agenda? Father, what's, what are you after? What do you want to see happen in the world? Can I, can I be a part of that? Can I do that too? Can I have a Beach Boys album? And so I hope today as we begin to journey through Scripture, you're going to see first God's heart bubbling over. We're going to go from Genesis to Revelation today. So um, 4,000 years in about 35 minutes. Um, 
All the, all the scripture that I'll talk about will be on the slide, so don't feel like you have to write them down. In fact, I'll email the, the PowerPoint to you afterwards if you want them. Just um, I hope you're able to sit back and see the goodness of God. And as we do that, I think we're going to start to say, okay, what about my part in that? Father, how can I be a part of what you're after in the world? So we're going to start where every good story starts in the beginning, in Genesis 1. Uh, you may know this part of the story. God has made uh, man and woman, has set them in the garden, and he comes to them in Genesis 1:28, and it says that God blessed them, right? The first, the first interaction between God and man, blessing, because that's what God's like, right? So God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Which begs the question, fill the earth with what? What do you think? Yeah, people. I don't ask trick questions on Sunday mornings at least. So with people, right? But, but not just any people. People created how? Yeah, just the previous couple verses. God made man and female in his image. And so God blessed them and said, fill the earth with people made in my image. People who are imaging me throughout the world. People who are reflecting me throughout the world. Fill it with little reflections of me. The whole earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Well, if you've read the story, you know that in chapter 3, they don't trust God, the blessing God. They trust the serpent and they turn away. And they're removed from the garden. And... Um, and and then the next thing you know, they have children. One of them kills the other. It starts to get worse and worse from there until in, uh, in chapter 6 we read that every thought of mankind was only evil continually. We reject God. We turn away. Evil breaks out in the world. But God is going to come again to another family. And you may know the story, right? Noah and his family go onto the ark. As God cleans the world. And when they step off the ark, he says this to them. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Plan's not changed. I still want to see the world filled with men and women who know me. Men and women who will reflect me throughout the earth. Men and women that I can bless. So this is take two, right? All right, let's try this again, Noah. Fill the earth. Well, if you read just a couple chapters later, we get to Genesis chapter 11, and it says in verse 1, now the whole earth had one, uh, had one language and a common speech. English, right? <laughs> no. No. They had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And then they said, Come. Let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may do what? Make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with, with people that will image me, that will glorify me. No thanks, God. No, we're going to make a name for ourselves and not be scattered. So God says, come, let us go down, in verse 7 and 8. Let us go down and confuse their language so they, they will not understand each other. 
So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. He's confused the language of the peoples of the earth that we know today. This is their beginning. God, God, in a sense, fills the earth. God scatters people throughout the earth. What's the problem, though, now? Are these people joyfully reflecting God in all that they're doing in the world? Or have they just attempted a, 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 a heavenly coup on the plains of Shinar? So you have these rebels now scattered throughout the world. And so the, the question is, what will God do with these scattered peoples to draw them back to himself? Will he um, rain down WWJD bracelets from heaven in, in all their languages? Will he um, email? No, that, that doesn't exist. What will he do? Well, his plan is, I'm going to choose one family. In Genesis 12, we read, the Lord, just following on the heels of that, of, that, um, of that scattering, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. God chooses one family. And he says, I'm going to read this. I will, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abram, I'm going to pour so much blessing on you. In fact, name, uh, offspring, land, blessing. Why? So that you will be a blessing. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Paul in Galatians 8 quotes this verse and says, that's actually the, go- the promise of the gospel in advance, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And so this is the blessing. Abram, I'm choosing you. But it's, it's, and, and, and I do love you. Abram's a friend of God, but you notice from the very beginning, it's not all because of or about Abram, right? It's that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And Abraham left. We read in verse 4, left as the Lord had told him. He obeyed. This is the beginning of God consolidating his, his, his mission. The, the beginning of the response to these global rebels. How am I going to save them? Well, I'm going to do it through a family. This family is going to have a great, 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 great grandson who's going to save the world. But it's starting here. Abram, in the next slide, he has a son, Isaac. And God says this to him, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars, and through your offspring all nations on the earth will be blessed. He has a son, Jacob. Jacob, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you'll spread out from from the north and the south to the east to the west, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Sound familiar? God's, Lord, you're, you're sounding like a broken record here. Why do you keep repeating yourself? He's only going to quote Genesis 12, that, that, that first message to Abram, 400 more times in Scripture. It's a thread throughout the story because, it, remember, it's God choosing Israel. That's where it starts. Why did I choose you? Through your offspring, all nations will be blessed. The Messiah will come and save the world. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. Here's my mission. And as we go through the rest of the Old Testament, even as you encounter all of these famous stories 
Pharaoh in Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, Rahab, Jericho, David and Goliath, Temple, Psalms, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. You could throw David in the lines, Daniel in the lines, and, and, and stories of several prophets in there. And each of them, each of them, God is going to come and he's going to show up and show off for his people. And, and that blessing is going to spill over into drawing the nations to himself. 1,600 times throughout Scripture, we see God declaring his love for the nations. And I thought we'd just look at all 1,600 today. <laughs> no, no, we'll pick a handful of these. And we'll, we're just going to watch God as he's executing that mission. Bless Israel so that the nations are drawn in. Bless my people so that the nations run and stream to me. All right, so let's, let's do that. Let's look at the Exodus. In, in uh, Exodus chapter 9, Moses comes to Pharaoh, and they, we've got a few plagues going on. Th- tensions are building. God has already said, oh, let my people go, if you know the song, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Well, he says this in 9.16 to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh, that's why you're here. That's why all these things are happening. Um, you've worshipped the sun god, Ra. Well, I'm going to blacken the sun. Because Ra is not God. You worship the Nile River. I'm going to turn it to blood. Because I am the Lord, not the Nile. There's a deity in Egypt that the, the idol for it was shaped like a frog. You like frogs? Egypt, do you like frogs? Here, have billions of them. You'll be begging me to never see a frog again. And they do. Because God has shown himself supreme over the gods of Egypt. In fact, that last terrible plague of the death of the firstborn son. Think about it for a minute. To be a priest in Egypt, you had to be born in a certain birth order in your family. Can you guess what order you had to be? Firstborn. I'm the youngest of four. I, I couldn't have been a priest in Egypt. But the firstborn son could be a priest. And so in a single night, God demonstrates his supremacy over the entire pantheon of Egypt. The entire religious system of Egypt crumbles under the supreme judgment of God in a night. I've raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you think the nations heard about what happened in Egypt, how God showed himself supreme over Ra and other gods? Yeah, the news started to get out. We read in Exodus 12, as the Israelites journey from Ramses to Succoth, as as they're leaving Egypt, there were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children, and many other people went up with them. Imagine you're living in the desert, and you one day watch, and there's this seemingly never-ending trail of people coming out of Egypt, and you notice, oh, wow, that's, uh, that's a pillar of fire in front of them, leading them on their way. And maybe you watch as it turns into a pillar of cloud, to protect them from the sun. And, and your friend is there and you say, Do you, what's going on here? Haven't you heard? Haven't you heard? That's the God of Israel. 
He's defeated the gods of Egypt. He, he, a part of the Red Sea, his people went through on dry land. And when Pharaoh's army, the most powerful army on the planet, went through after them, he, he destroyed them all. He closed the Red Sea over them. Now he's leading them as a shepherd through the wilderness, protecting them from the sun and warming them and guiding them at night. He's carrying them as on eagles' wings. How long would it take you to ditch the idol that you've been carrying around on your camel throughout the desert and to run after Yahweh, to run after the one true and living God? Many other people went up with them, right? This was front page news. World's most powerful army destroyed in a moment by a bunch of slaves and their God. I don't know how they would have worded it, probably better than that. Even 40 years later, as we get in onto the verge of the promised land and we're about to take Jericho, we meet this woman, Rahab. Uh, and this is what she says to the spies. We have heard, remember this was 40 years later, how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear for Yahweh, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. This little Canaanite woman remembered what God had done for his people. And so she joins herself to God's people and actually finds herself as the great, 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 great grandmother of the Messiah, Jesus. And she marries into the line of Judah. It's amazing. Did God do this for his people? Yeah. He heard their groanings. He cared for them. He loved them. But did he do it? Just for his people. No way. No way. It's so that people like Rahab, people like Jethro, people like Caleb, these Old Testament heroes, some of them, could be swept into the family of God as he shows up and shows off for his people. Well, in the storyline here, we get into the promised land, and there's the judges period. That didn't go very well, but... Eventually, we have a king. The first one was a little bit of a dud. But we meet this guy named David in 1 Samuel, who God says, this is a man after my own heart. This is the king that I want you to have. And so after he's anointed, he goes out into the wilderness in uh, chapter 17, and he has this fight, this one-on-one -on -one battle that's so famous, this David and Goliath scene. You maybe have heard of it as if um, it's all about um, our really bad basketball team can beat the state champs, right? That God really cares for the underdog, so he put this, these verses in the Bible just for us, just so that Joe Plummer knows that he can take on Big Pharma. Or, <laughs> right? Isn't, isn't that why David and Goliath exist? Isn't it for me? So that I can slay the giants in my life and I can learn to throw the five smooth stones of success. Is that not, No. Well, what, why, why then is it there? Why then is it there? Is it to even show me that I could be David? I actually think the point, you know, if, if I'm anyone in the story, I'm one of the Israelite people, one of the members of the army that's on the verge of retreat, on the verge of surrender, who when, when he hears the, the, the yells of, of Goliath, we go running into our tents. You see, we needed a champion 
We needed someone who would stand between us and the evil one, who would do battle for us. And so this David goes out, right? And whatever happens to him happens to the rest of us. It doesn't matter how good we are, how talented we are, how scared we are. Everything depends on David. Are we starting to understand why Jesus is called David and the son of David so many times? The one who stands between God's people and death. And so David goes out, but David knows that this isn't, this isn't an under, underdog story. It's not, all, it's not all about him. In fact, in verse 45, he says this, This day I will strike you down. The birds of the air will eat your eyes. The, the beasts of the field will eat your guts. I guess I meant to leave that out, but um, it's gross, right? Um, this is going to happen, and the whole world will know. God's going to bless me, and the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel Front page news, prepubescent boy defeats world's greatest warrior. The world heard. It wasn't just for David, but David knew God's heart. Right? And David and, and other psalmists caught that. You just saw Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us, cause his face to shine on us. That's verse 1. And often, not today, because your mission leaders know better. Um, but often you'll hear verse 1 alone with nothing else added to it. And you can understand why. I mean, I love verse 1. It's all about who? Me. Yeah, may God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Amen. Yes, Lord. But that's a semicolon at the end of the sentence. Not a period. I was a literature major been mentioned and uh, I know that a semicolon means this thought is incomplete it needs something else to actually make it all make sense and so we read verse 2 let's put that up there that your ways may be known on the earth your salvation among all nations yes pray for blessing we need God's blessing bless us why though why for my name for me, just for me? It's almost as if the psalmist here had read Genesis 12 and had paid attention to the rest of the Old Testament where God does bless Israel, but watches it as it spills over and draws the nations to him. And so let's pray Psalm 67. The whole thing, actually, I just have two verses here. Here's another psalm, Psalm 4610. Maybe you can complete it for me. Be still and? Be still and know that I am God. Yep. Be still and know that I am God. Pull, pull that much up. So that's the first half of verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I have a friend who tells a story of going into Mardell. Are there Mardells in OKC? Okay. Goes into Mardell. He's with his wife. She's getting something. He's wandering around as he tends to do. And um, he says, I was just walking through and I saw this this picture, this framed picture, it was beautiful, breathtaking scenery, a mountain stream coming down and just a, a, a beautiful valley, luscious and, and flourishing. And at the bottom of the picture, there was a plaque that said, be still and know that I am God, dot, 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 Psalm 4610. And he thought, man, I love that verse. I love that picture. That's awesome. 
And he said, but as I wandered through the rest of the store, I, store, I found a coffee mug with a little lamb on it that said, be still and know that I'm God, dot, 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 Psalm 4610. And he said, everywhere I looked, I saw more and more merchandise and paraphernalia with be still and know that I'm God, dot, 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 Psalm 4610. And I begin to wonder, what could be go so bad about the rest of that verse that nobody wants to read it? <laughs> right? What would it say? Be still and know that I'm God. And Judas went out and hung himself. Or, uh, how bad could the ending be? And so he went to the wall of Bibles there in Mardell. He pulled a Bible off of the shelf. He opened it to Psalm 4610. And let's look at what the full verse says. Be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And my buddy said, that was really the first time I understood how I read the Bible as if it's about me instead of about God. I turn God's glory into an ellipsis, into a dot, 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 by the way I read Scripture. Having a bad day, I'll read a psalm. Maybe it'll make me feel better. Really bad day, I'll read Job, because at least it's not that bad. Um, but I make God's word as if I'm the, the main character. So not only do we miss God, we're never going to see his love for others like the nations when we're just looking for ourselves, right? Well, David was a good king. He had some struggles. Uh, his son ended up splitting the kingdom because of his poor leadership. And then we get sent into exile eventually. And there we meet these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. You might know them as Shadrach and Benny, right? Any VeggieTale fans in, in the house? Well, you probably know the story, though, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, along with all that were in the city um, there when Nebuchadnezzar, he reveals this golden idol, they're commanded, bow down. You hear, the, you hear the music? Bow down to this idol and worship. They say no, so Nebuchadnezzar throws them into the fiery furnace. And... It, it, not to share too much of the details, but he looks into the fiery furnace. He sees that they're not burned up. In fact, there's a fourth person in there that Nebuchadnezzar says, it looks like the Son of God is in there with them. Come out. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. They come out, and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is amazed. He's amazed. What's he do? What's he say when he sees God has blessed his people? What's Nebuchadnezzar's response? We read in 29 and 30. Praise be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar worships God. I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces. Now, that's not very Christianly of him, but he's a new believer at this point, okay? So he's still working it out, all right? They'd be cut into pieces. Their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. God has shown himself, again, through his care for his people, his supremacy over the idols of the world, over the kingdoms of this earth, over the gods of men, right? And he started even drawing the king of Babylon to himself. And, of course, he then goes on to write these kinds of letters to all the peoples and nations and languages in my kingdom, 
So he becomes one of the greatest witnesses we see in the Old Testament. It's amazing. Let's look, let's end our part of the journey in the Old Testament looking at Isaiah. In Isaiah 49, um, we get to sort of eavesdrop in on a Trinitarian conversation. This is, this is God the Father speaking to God the Son. And he's, he's been talking about, you'll be my servant. You'll be my servant. Eventually in chapter 53, we'll find out that this, this servant will suffer and by his stripes we will be healed. He'll bear the burdens of my people. But here in, verse four, in chapter 49, verse 6, the father says to the son, the Messiah, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. You hear that? Messiah, it's too small just to redeem Israel. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, for the nations. It's the same word. That you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. It's too small. We know that from back in Genesis 1, right? God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So no wonder the Messiah, it's too small just to save a, a, a people in the western part of Asia, in the Middle East. So here we are, we're at the end of the Old Testament, and maybe the question I'd have you think about for a second is, is this how we've understood God's story in the Old Testament previously? Or have we missed it? Maybe you've read the Old Testament like I did for many years, looking for myself. How can I be more like David? How can I have the faith of Abraham? And some of that actually is good, but not at the expense of God. Not at the expense of who is God and what's he after in the world. I want to cheat a little bit here and get Jesus' summary of the Old Testament. He's going to, in Luke 24, he's, um, he's, he's died and risen. And now he's appeared to the disciples. And he's going to tell them what it's all about, what they've missed. Help them understand what's happened here. And so he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. R real quick, what scriptures? This is the Old Testament, right? So they can understand the Old Testament. Not James, that hadn't been written yet. Not Revelation, also not written. He's opening their minds to understand the Old Testament. And he told them, this is what is written. The Christ, the Messiah, will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. That's what the Old Testament's about. That's what it's about. Genesis to Malachi in your, in your Bibles is trying to help you see that story. Well, let's rewind for a second, because this is Luke 24. Let's go back to Luke 4. Jesus' ministry is just beginning. The Messiah has just kind of burst on the scene here. He, he was born the previous three chapters. is a lot of the Christmas stuff. Maybe you've just read it. But here in, in 4, Jesus' ministry is just getting underway, and he's in Capernaum. And that more, it's Sabbath. That morning, he heals a man or casts out a demon. I think it's a demon. And, um, and it just says, Luke writes, and they left and all went to their homes. Well, of course they did. It's Sabbath. You can't do anything else. So you got to 
So they go to their homes, but then Luke says, as soon as night fell, the whole town and people in the region went to Peter's house, Peter's mom's house. They want to see this man who cast out this demon. And um, this is later in the story, but he spends the night. Probably It could be Jesus' most amazing night of ministry. As far as we can tell, he spent six, eight hours casting out demons and healing sick people. Nonstop. Can you imagine being one of the disciples there watching, amazed at what you're seeing? And maybe you start to, in your head, formulate a plan. This guy is so amazing. Can you believe it? Peter, did you see that? Was that a demon that just flew past my ear? And so, when it was day, he departed. This is Jesus, departed and went to a a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. You can just imagine, maybe the disciples leading the charge. Maybe it's Peter saying something like, Jesus, that was amazing. Never seen that before. But we've got a good plan, okay? So Andrew plays the guitar. What we're going to do is we're going to build a church here. It'll be First Church Capernaum. And uh, there may may be fog machines. Uh, um, We can get a choir, but but we'll build it and people will come from all over Israel. And you just have to do your thing, and we'll take care of all the rest. Because we want you to stay. Jesus, see, there's so many, there's so many needs here. Don't, don't go. There's so many needs here. But Jesus responds in verse 43 and says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For that, for I was sent for this purpose. That's my purpose, not to hoard blessing, not to just keep it for one place or even one people. No, to preach the kingdom of God to other towns as well. So this idea that blessing and the gospel is meant to spread from where it is to where it's not, from those that have it to those who don't have it, that's just following from Genesis 12, really. Actually, Genesis 1. That God's blessing is meant to fill the earth. And so Jesus, of course, he's going to do this. He's going to set the agenda for the early church who's going to follow in his footsteps too. His ministry, you'll see on the next slide, even though he's going to the house of the people of Israel and mostly spending time in Israel, he's going to go out of his way to spend time with demon-possessed gatherings. Uh, with, uh, uh, he's going he's gonna to praise the faith of a Roman centurion. He's going to feed 4,000 Canaanites or, or Gentiles. Yeah, there's 5,000 Jews at one point, but he also then says, hey, you know what? The nations need this too, don't they? They need me too. He's going to chat with a Samaritan woman <sighs> again and again and again. The Jewish Messiah, in some sense, shamefully, Going out of his way to spend time with Gentiles, to rescue Gentiles, to save Gentiles, to teach Gentiles. Why would he do that? Because it's too small a thing. It's too small a thing to just rescue Israel. In chapter 24, let's look at chapter 24, verse 3 the, the, uh, of Matthew, sorry. The disciples come to Jesus and he's 
he's seeing the temple, and he's and um, and, and they're kind of praising the buildings, and he says something about, well, they're they're going to be torn down, but I'll build it back up. Really cryptic. So they ask him. He explains later. But their first question about it was here in verse three. What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? When will the end come? Jesus, you've done some amazing things. We're here towards the end of Matthew. And can you give us some of the bigger picture here? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus spends 10 verses or so talking about there'll be war, rumor of war, famine, pestilence, families turning against each other. But twice in the wider passage, he said those aren't the sign. No, the world going to hell in a handbasket is not the sign of the end. That person being elected, that person being assassinated is not the signs of the end. Those are called birth pains. What's the sign? He says in verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Then the end will come which if you've been listening to the story makes a lot of sense because our God keeps his promises, right? Right? He's not going to end things. He's not going to cut off his mercy until until he's kept his promise to Abraham. All peoples, all nations will be blessed. The way Paul puts it in Romans 11, this isn't on the slide, but in Romans 11 he says that, um, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that a partial hardening has come upon the Jews until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So there's this season where there's a a partial hardening on the Jewish people while we wait for the fullness of the nations, the Gentiles, to come in. Or 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 8. um, Actually, at the beginning of that chapter, he says, scoffers will come in the last days scoffing and saying, where is his coming? Why hasn't Jesus returned? What's wrong, Peter? Did he forget about you? And Peter says, God's not slow to keep his promises. Some count slowness, right? With the Lord, a day is a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. Well, why is he delaying then? He desires that none should perish, but all should reach repentance. He's delaying because the gospel has to go out further and further and further, right? And then Peter ends in verse 12 saying, what sort of lives should we live in holiness then as we wait for and hasten the coming of the day of God. How should we live? If this is true, if God is waiting because he's merciful, how should we live then? As we wait for and hasten the coming of the day of God. So this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I've been exchanging that word nations and peoples and Gentiles In in this chat, in the New Testament, the Greek word for nations is the Greek word ethnos. Ethnos, the the plural is ethne. Does it sound like an English word you might recognize? Right? And so we often hear nations, and our first sense is that I think of France or Brazil or China, these nation states, right? These political um, entities that exist today. But of course, that wasn't what it was like in Jesus' day. Was it? When he talked about the nations, he never talked about the place they lived. What did he talk about? He talked about their ethno-linguistic culture, right? The Philistines, the 
Canaanites, the Jews, the Romans, right, the Persians, these peoples, the Jebusites, the, 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 all these peoples, Hittites, right? And so this is the, on the next slide, there's an, a picture of the nation state, today's map of Nigeria. We drew this map about 65, 70 years ago when Nigeria gained their independence. This is not a map at the back of your Bible because this is not Jesus' map of, of the world, of how he sees the nations. That Greek word ethne, where we get our English words ethnicity, right? And so this morning you heard Emily talk about people groups. And people groups is a, is a word that mission leaders use to talk about nations, to talk about what Jesus meant by nations. Because this is today's Nigeria. Let me show you the nations, the ethne of Nigeria. 180 people groups, 180 ethno-linguistic nations in Nigeria. And you can see Cameroon, the surrounding areas. Maybe you know about the Hausa, that big, that large people group in the northwest. Most of Boko Haram are part of the Hausa people group. They're primarily Muslim, which is very different from the Ebo. They're in the southwest who are primarily Christian. The gospels come to them. They've been reached. They have access to it. They have large churches, and they're, they're sending out missionaries. On planet Earth today, there's around 7,000 people groups with little to no access to the gospel. And so we call them unreached. Unreached peoples with little to no access to the gospel. Some of them could walk for weeks before they would get to a church if they knew that such a thing ever existed. We have stories of people in India going to villages and, and saying, do you know Jesus here? And the response is, he doesn't live here. He must be at the next village. They've not heard of Jesus. They've not heard the gospel. They are not only lost, right? We know lost people around us, but they're unreached. They have, no, they have no gospel access. They haven't heard it and said no. They've never heard it. But the good news is, we see in Revelation 5, 9, um, the, the lamb is there on the throne, and around him is this heavenly crowd that's singing you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus has bought them with his blood. Now it's starting to make sense, doesn't it? If, if the end waits for this, right? And if Jesus pays for it, surely it's going to happen. Right, so he pours out his blood for it. And when he rises from the dead, on the next slide, you're going to see the great commissions. Because in every gospel and in the book of Acts, we see Jesus saying, essentially, I bought them, now go get them. Matthew 28, 18. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and proclaim the good news to all creation. 
John says it a little differently because it's a different moment, a different conversation. But Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Luke 24, we've already read. That's his summary of the Old Testament. Forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all nations. Acts 1.8, the Holy Spirit will come on you and you receive power. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Again and again, these 40 days with his disciples between his death and, and uh, sorry, his resurrection and ascension, Jesus is saying, it's time. I bought them. Now go get them. I bought them. Now go get them. And we can cheat and go to the very end of the story. If you'll pull up Revelation 7, 9 for us on the slide. After this, I looked. This is John again. So we already heard in, in uh, Revelation 5, 9, Jesus purchased the nations. But then we see in Revelation 7, 9, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb singing, I didn't put this on the slide, I should have, singing salvation belongs to our God. The nations are singing, salvation belongs to our God. If, if all this is true, I mean, from Genesis 1 to here, we're at Revelation 7. If all this is true, what's that mean for me? What's that mean for us? What's that mean for Crosstown as a church? You individual, your family, how do we respond Um, often when you ask that question, people start wondering about if they're called. Uh, I, I get a real laugh out of a lot of call questions and stories because they remind me of this um, quote I want to read to you from the New Zealand Baptist newspaper here uh, on this slide. Um, yeah, from the New Zealand Baptist newspaper. See if we can pull it up there. You can read along with me. <coughs> I learned... I learned that there was this fearful thing called a call thing that could strike without warning at any time. Missionaries would, talk, would describe how their lives had been proceeding on a normal, happy course until whammo, God afflicted them with this call thing. As far as I could gather, a call was a bit like having a stroke, a sudden rearrangement of your cerebral software so that instead of wanting to be normal and happy, you wanted to be a missionary. Does that sound familiar? Don't we talk about God's call that way? It's, um, it, it's pretty funny. Often you'll hear people say things like, Lord, just don't call me to, don't name a place. Don't want to offend anyone. Um, but Lord, just don't call me to such and such a place. And it's that kind of, um, well, let me put it this way. If that's what it takes for you to be a missionary or for you to get involved in missions locally, if that's what it takes, if you have to have a miraculous encounter with God to get involved, then whose fault is it that the Great Commission is unfulfilled 2,000 years after the life of Christ? Who's not calling enough people? It's God's fault. If he cared for the lost as much as we did, if I were him, I'd call more people. 
Oswald Smith said, if you're waiting for a call, put your ear to the Bible. What he meant was, if you read the 1,600 verses or so through Scripture that already say, this is my heart, this is what I'm after, this is what I'm calling my people to engage in and to be a part of, then the question isn't, am I called? It's, what's my role? It's, how can I help? It's, what gifts, abilities, influence, uh, uh, you know, connections do I have that can help get the gospel from where it is to where it's not, to fill gospel gaps in the world? And so you pray. I love it that this week you guys are getting to, into your family groups and you're praying. You're praying for laborers. You're praying for the laborers that are there. Be sure to pray for new laborers to go too, right? I'm sure you will. Pray. You can give. There's the, the invitation this morning to give. I think when we start to really understand God's mission, for me at least, that started making giving really exciting. You mean my 50 bucks a month, my 100 bucks a month is helping reach an unreached people group? Are you kidding me? Helping get the Bible into a language it's never been in? Are you serious? Right? Is it just me? I'm weird, I know. <laughs> but give. We want to give sacrificially, joyfully. We want to welcome. I know, that, um, I know that you've had, like Tulsa, a bit of an influx of Afghan refugees, etc. They, you could not go there with the gospel. You could not take it to them. And, and so God has taken the, the 1040 window and turned it upside down and started shaking it out over to the U.S. and other places. They can hear the gospel here. Let's get it to them. And then you can go. Not all of us will go. Not all of us should go. But some of us need to go. A friend of mine says, if we all bloom where we're planted, half the world remains a desert. Does that make sense? If we all just stay where we are, the gospel will not, cannot get to all the places it needs to be. So some of us should go. And um, let's finish with one last look into heaven. Revelation 19, we read, The angel said to me, write this. So John, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. See that word blessed there? That, that word blessing has come up a lot, right? Blessed are those. The ultimate blessing are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But we already know the end waits because the invitation hasn't made it out to everyone yet, right? And so when we look at the next slide in Revelation 22, we ask, well, what's, what's the church meant to be doing? What's the, what's the church about during this in-between times? And look, it's not just us. It's not just the bride. It's not just the church. The spirit and the bride, God himself and his church say, come. And let the one who hears, if you've ever heard the gospel, you've heard, what do you do with it? You, you go and say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price and come. I don't know about you, but I can't think of anything I'd rather give my life to. Whether I'm in the marketplace or the mission field, 
whether I'm in Tulsa or Timbuktu, being a part of God's mission, what he's doing in the world. And the way I would encourage you to take and start, to, if it, maybe it's first steps, maybe it's your next step. If I could leave something with you, a step to take, I would say um, the church is a body. So your job isn't to be a little toe rolling around by itself, getting on the internet, typing in, what's my mission? No, it's to link in with the foot. It's a part of the leg. It's a part of the, the church. And so able to come to the elders or the mission team, mission leaders, and say, what are we doing? Where are we at in the world? And how can I be a part? Right? We're meant to do this together. Right? So, friends, I, I'm so excited. It, maybe this is your first time. But I, if it is, I invite you to join the mission of God. Maybe you've already been invited, but you forgot about it. And, and I want to re-invite you to join God in his mission to, 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 to make his name glorious throughout the earth among all nations. And maybe you're already joining in with what God is doing in the world. And for you, I'd say, I hope you're having fun. And remember to look to, look to God. Look to Jesus. Walk with him even as you continue in your mission. Let's pray. Father, whew, your word is good. We praise you. We praise you for your heart, too, that is so good. That we could sing that you love us so. You love us so. You blessed us so. Now, Lord, we pray that your blessing on our lives, your love for us would overflow and join the great river of love and blessing that's filling the earth and reaching the nations. Lord, I pray for each individual, each family here, that you would um, continue to warm their hearts towards the gospel and towards gospel work in the world. I pray that you would help husbands and wives to be on the same page. I pray for this church, for the leadership and the mission team, that you would give them unity of mind and purpose and heart. And um, Lord, across town, more and more and more would be a launching pad to the nation. Lord, I, I'm so excited that they're, uh, already they're almost tithing members to the field. I love it, Lord. Um, we say do more and more. Do more and more for your name and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.